All right, so finally, after a uh, what seems like a three-month hiatus, uh, we are back in our series, walking through the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, I'll just speak for myself. It feels very good to finally get back into like norm- normal rhythms of life. Uh, school has started. For those of us who take our kids to a school, can I get an amen? That school has started. Uh, football has kind of started, if we want to t- call that Cardinals performance last night, football. Uh, and it was under 100 degrees yesterday, which means fall is almost here. God is at work amongst us, folks. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to get to see a passage in Matthew 9 where Jesus is going to call one of his disciples to follow him. Uh, but that's not necessarily the emphasis of the story, even though it is like the heading uh, in your Bible. Uh, Jesus had a lot of purposes when he came to this earth. Uh, The main purpose Jesus had, why he came to earth, is because we are not in right standing with God the Father. Somebody had to build the bridge to God the Father. That's why Jesus came to this earth to do that. But in order to do that, uh, Jesus came and he was very intentional about who he came to reach. Uh, in the church world, you hear this word get thrown out a lot. It's, it's missional. Uh, we're, we're called to be on mission. We're called to be, do missional living. Uh, it's kind of like a little tagline in most church communities. And honestly, we say it, but it's something that's kind of hard to do. It's something that a lot of us struggle to do, to wake up every day with this mindset of, I am going to live my life completely to be on mission for Jesus Christ today. And I'm talking about like the context of a lot of us get in put, put in context of people who are lost, people who are non-Christians. How are you salt and light to those people? Natural bent, as a lot of us grow in our faith, is we kind of go into these holy huddles. We surround ourselves with only Christians, and we shield ourselves from the world and all the things that it offers, which in a sense is good. Uh, But this morning, we're going to see that Jesus takes a disciple right out of that world that we shield ourselves from. Not just that, he brings the disciple from that, and then he does everything he can to have relationship with that guy's friends. Uh, So we got a lot to do this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 9. And while you open your Bible, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us. Uh, God, I thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, I thank you for just the opportunity to gather up as a church body and worship you uh, through songs and now opening your word. So God, as we do that, uh, just guide every word that comes out of my mouth. Uh, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is active in this place. Uh, to touch the lives of people who need to know what your grace is. Uh, it's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen. All right, Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, kind of quick change of scene, but I'll get you there. Uh, Matthew tells us in verse 9, he says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Uh, So Matthew starts verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, the question is, where's he coming from? Uh, He's moving on from healing the paralytic. If you look at the beginning of chapter 9, about a month ago when we were in the Matthew series, that's where Matt kind of left us and we took an impromptu break. Uh, Remember when Jesus heals the paralytic, uh, there's a lot going on. It wasn't just him healing the paralytic. The stuff that he was saying to the paralytic, when he tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Uh, So that's kind of what Jesus is coming from in the context of this story. When he heals the paralytic and he tells him his sins are forgiven, uh, there was a lot of doubt that started to arise from everybody around. Like, what is this guy doing saying he can forgive somebody of their sins? 
uh, during the healing, you hear the scribes kind of in the background. They're saying, that guy's blaspheming. He's saying that his sins were forgiven. And then when the event is over, Matthew tells us that the crowds were kind of afraid. They were kind of wondering, like, what's up with this guy? Not only can he heal like deformities, but he can also forgive sins. And so now in verse 9, we see Matthew uh, kind of transition to talk about how he was called to be a disciple. Uh, We see Jesus encounter this guy, Matthew. That's the Matthew that's writing this book. Uh, Matthew has another name, uh, Levi. Uh, So pretty cool fact that I saw during my study time. I don't normally do this uh, because I'm not trying to flex the fact that I know Greek. This isn't seminary. This is a church. Uh, But again, we're hanging out in the gospel of Matthew. This helps you see kind of the point of how Matthew writes every single passage we're going to preach. So if you look at this verse, uh, verse 9 in the actual Greek. So the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, So if you read it in Greek, in Greek, the word order uh, means everything. In English, the word order can be thrown off a little bit. Uh, So on the slide, you can kind of see the literal order in which the original manuscript was written. In English, it would be translated it's kind of choppy. Uh, This is why it gets switched in English. But Matthew would have written, or he did write, he saw a man sitting at the tax booth, comma, Matthew. Uh, So you'll see in our text, it's he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Here, Matthew, the original word order, what he's doing is intentional. Again, the order of words have more more importance in Greek than in English. Matthew is intentionally listing his name last. He's doing everything he can, not just in this passage, but to the entire book to not highlight himself. Uh, Because of that, verse 9 kind of gives us a clue to verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 that verse 9 is not the most important part. Even though that's the heading in our Bible, uh, Jesus calls Matthew, that's not what Matthew is trying to get you to see. The point isn't Matthew, the point is what Jesus is doing. Just as in the last several weeks of this series, The point wasn't the leprosy. The point wasn't the paralysis, the demon possession, the weather that was on the Sea of Galilee that day, the fever that Peter's mother-in-law had. That was never the point. Uh, Matthew is concise with the way he writes because what he wants his audience to see, what he wants us to see this morning over and over and over again is the character of Jesus. And he cuts out all distractions from that. Uh, So this paragraph, verses 9 through 13, highlight the character of who Jesus is. And here's why. We see that the emphasis on who Matthew was at the time. We see what Jesus is doing here in verse 9. We find Matthew in this scene. He's sitting at a tax booth, meaning Matthew's a tax collector. It's really not hard in 2023 America to think about this. Uh, Nobody in here is probably a huge fan of the IRS unless you work for them. Uh, Even deeper, nobody in here probably likes taxes unless you're an accountant. Uh, But tax collectors 2,000 years ago were a special type of unpopular individuals. Uh, Here's how it works. For some of you, this is review. Uh, Most taxes, so they're in Capernaum, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, most taxes would go directly to Rome. But in Matthew's case, he got to tax specific things that made him a middleman. Uh, Matthew's job was to tax the goods on transported items that are coming off the Sea of Galilee. So remember, 
right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're in Capernaum. Matthew would have a booth on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and then he would see every boat that would dock and would bring goods off, and then he would sit there at his tax booth, and then he would plan to collect a specific amount of money from the person that's bringing those goods in. So here's how Matthew got rich. Let's say the tax on a product was $5. That $5 would go to Rome. What the Roman government let guys like Matthew do is upcharge the tax however you want. So if a good is brought in, he sees and the tax is five, he would tell the person the tax is seven. He would pocket two, send five to the Roman government, so on and so forth all day long. Tax collectors would become wealthy because they would swindle the people. Even worse, Matthew is Jewish. Uh, His name in Hebrew means gift to the Lord, which is hilarious because he's taking gifts. He's not giving them to the Lord. He's giving them to the Roman government. Uh, But we have a Jewish tax collector taxing Jewish people to give to the Roman government that they did not like. This is like the ultimate Benedict Arnold situation. This is like some of you who are like Cowboys fans, but you grew up in Phoenix. Okay, It's like you're one of us, but you're not one of us. Uh, So tax collectors, they're hated. Better yet, Matthew himself, not well liked, especially by the Jews. So for the Jewish rabbi, Jesus, who's new on the scene, he's got all this authority. We see Jesus right here. He's not really going for the number one draft pick in the disciple draft, is he? Jesus comes up to the tax booth. He looks Matthew in the face and he says, follow me, That verb tense of follow me is in the present imperative verb, which means a continuous following. Uh, Jesus isn't going up to Matthew and saying, hey, bro, take the afternoon off. Let's play 18. We'll grab dinner together. It was, no, Matthew, get out of the tax booth. Leave that career and be my disciple. So what do we see Matthew do? He gets out of the tax booth and he follows Jesus. Now again, the focus isn't on Matthew, it's on Jesus. So Matthew uses one verse to talk about his calling, and then it's a change of scene in verse 10. He said, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. Again, Matthew's short on details, so you have to look at the books of Mark and Luke to kind of fill in holes. Uh, Jesus is here at somebody's house. He's eating dinner. That would have been a very normal thing for a Jewish rabbi to do. Jesus is the guest of honor at this house. So the question is, whose house is he in? Uh, Thankfully, Luke tells us because he's more detailed. Luke 5.29, it says, And Levi, remember, that's Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. Uh, Two names is a normal thing. Simon was also called Peter. Saul is Paul. Matthew is Levi. Two names, not uncommon in that time. But Luke tells us it's Levi or Matthew becomes Jesus' disciple, leaves the tax booth, and he goes home and he makes Jesus a great feast. Uh, So a couple things to highlight here. Uh, First and foremost, Matthew is a tax collector. We know that in that time, tax collectors weren't well-liked, but at the end of the day, tax collectors made a decent amount of money. Uh, We can see from this, him inviting Jesus over to his house, two things. He has the capacity in his home to invite a lot of people over, so it's probably a bigger house that he could entertain people in, and then we see him with the money to either cater a nice meal for everyone there. He was probably smoking a brisket instead of pulled pork, but he's Jewish. He wouldn't have eaten any of that stuff. I don't know what they did back then. So here we go. He's rich. He's got money to provide food and provide a house for people to come. So knowing that, now let's back up to verse 9 and let's see things through a proper lens of Matthew leaving the tax booth that day. Jesus calls Matthew. He says, follow me. Be my disciple. 
immediately. Matthew leaves the tax booth, leaves his career to follow Jesus for around three years. Now let's juxtapose that of what math, the situation Matthew's in right before Jesus comes up to his tax booth. He's sitting in the tax booth. He's not well-liked, but he's rich. He's got stable income. He's got a lucrative job. He's got the ability to throw parties in this nice house. He's got the ability to entertain and buy people food. In that moment, he leaves all of that to follow a guy around who's a rabbi, but he's not teaching anything like what the other rabbis taught. Uh, didn't have some discipleship base with him of all the up-and-coming students in the schools, right? Matthew, in that moment, leaves the tax booth, leaves it all to follow a guy who's telling everybody your sins are forgiven. He's implying, like, I'm God in the flesh. In the tax booth, he has a life of stability. Outside of the tax booth, he starts following a guy who says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. For us, like we get the Bible and we get to read the Bible today. Our hindsight's 2020. We know it worked out okay for Matthew, right? But it had to be a bit of a gamble that day. His response isn't one of nervousness. It doesn't say anything in Matthew, Mark, or Luke about how he nervously left the tax booth that day. But what it does highlight is he was pretty excited to leave the tax booth. He left the tax booth, he went home, and he threw a party for Jesus. Uh, this should be pretty instructive for us in our materialistic culture, right? It's crazy. Like, I've seen a lot of people, when they come to faith in Christ, uh, what typically happens is, like, scales kind of proverbially fall off your eyes, and you start to see things differently. Uh, suddenly, the more you become a Christian, the more you walk uh, in your faith and in your walk with God, you see the priorities that you used to have, things like wealth, uh, status, happiness, power, even like contentment in the world, all those things that we're taught to, to chase, right? Like live your best life now, all that stuff that we're taught by the world to do, all those things that Matthew had, uh, suddenly... Those things are removed from your life when you're a Christian, or at least the more you walk with God, those things should have the volume turned down in your life, like money should no longer be your God. Guess what? The more you grow in your faith, you realize that your life is completely placed in Jesus's hands, and you realize quickly, Jesus's hands are far more stable than the facade of the world that tells you to chase this, this, and this. Matthew walking out of the tax booth that day made him one of the 12 disciples, made him one of the four authors of a gospel. And whether it's Matthew for us, or Matthew then or us today, uh, a disciple of Jesus is commanded. It's a command of Jesus Christ to leave your old self behind. Uh, Matthew in that moment was commanded to leave his career behind, his old world behind. We are commanded to do that today, to leave the lifestyle of the flesh behind and walk in newness of life that only Christ can offer. And we have concrete examples of this, right? It's not just the disciples following Jesus and it turned out okay, uh, but examples throughout history of people abandoning all their earthly dreams and laying those things down to follow Christ. Uh, I've never heard any Christian say, man, I regret following Jesus. He's never done anything for me. It really steered me wrong. Uh, I stand up here today as a 36-year-old man. I know I have a lot of life left. Statistically, I'm going to die in 30 years. Uh, but I've never sat there and said, you know what? Following Jesus is terrible. Uh, actually, the older I get, the more mature in my faith I get, uh, my contentment in him does nothing but grow. Uh, the world is no longer nearly as shiny as it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. 
So there's some of you in here this morning who've been kind of teetering on this line of like, should I accept Christ? Accepting Christ meaning, means I have to give him control of my life. And you kind of have one foot in, one foot out because you don't trust him. Know from this that Jesus Christ can be trusted and know that he's so much better of a thing to pursue than all those things that you're gonna chase and you might not obtain. So for the Christian in this room, the Christian who still hangs on to those things, those works of the flesh that have always plagued you, those sins that kind of entangle you from running the race properly, what is God asking you this morning to let go of? You have to see through this story, it's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the one that comes up to you. He calls you out of the life that you're currently in. He's the one that pursues you. You don't pursue him. Uh, look at the second half of our text this morning in Matthew 5.10. Who's at the party? Matthew tells us, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were, were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Jesus is with two different types of people at this table. Uh, Matthew says, many tax collectors. Uh, it's like Matthew invited all of his coworkers over. A bunch of scums of the earth that the Jews didn't like. Jesus shouldn't have liked those guys. And then many tax collectors, and then he uses this catch-all category of sinners. Tax collectors and sinners sitting there eating dinner with Jesus. Uh, that word sinner is defined as a man or woman who's forfeited correct relationship with God by not being obedient to him. So on like the large scale sinner, Jesus could have sat there with somebody who is a murderer, a thief, a swindler, like that's a sinner. But then on like the smaller end of what we would consider a sinner, a sinner is just simply like anytime you're not obedient to Jesus Christ, you are committing sin. Those who are not obedient to him are sinners. Uh, but that's who Jesus is eating with. That's who Jesus came to this earth to save. That's like why he came to this earth. That's who Jesus continues to pursue on this earth. So for those of you, again, that might be a little bit on the fence this morning, tell me why the God of the universe wanting relationship with you, like somebody who's completely separated from him right now, Jesus Christ wants relationship with you so much that we see him pull a seat up at the table right next to you. And in that moment, he's not afraid to be around you. He invites you in. And in that moment, he moves you from the word sinner to a saint. He adopts you as part of his family. You've never experienced a love like that before. And in that moment, your life is transformed because you're now in the arms of Jesus instead of an unstable world. Now, that's who Jesus is. In the midst of your sin, no matter how dark, deep, or broken your sin is that you walked in here with this morning, Jesus Christ still relentlessly pursues you. And that's, at the end of the day, what makes Jesus so beautiful. That's what makes him so perfect. Uh, let's contrast that with the religious group. How do they act? Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, hey, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, so the Pharisees, the, the good Jewish people who knew everything, uh, they wouldn't have been at this dinner. Uh, they had heard about the dinner, but they weren't in there during the dinner. In fact, it was written on their laws that if a tax collector had entered a home, if a tax collector had been in a home, they can't even walk in the house because the tax collector made that home unclean. Uh, walking into the home then would make them unclean. So they would stay out of the way of the Jewish tax collectors. They would stay out of the way of men like Matthew. Uh, so they find out what Jesus is doing and what do they do? Kind of like what they normally do. They're passive aggressive. They confront Jesus' disciples. They don't confront Jesus directly. They say, hey, 
Why does your teacher have dinner with the tax collectors? Why does your teacher have dinner with the sinners? Why is he so unwilling to make himself unclean? Why is he, the one who says he can forgive sins, surrounding himself, giving himself such ample time and opportunity to those who are so full of sin, those who are so distanced from us religious people? And even though they don't confront Jesus directly, Jesus, because he's God, he hears it and he responds himself in verse 12. It says, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he responds with this metaphor that's not really hard to understand. Uh, If you leave here today and you go to the local emergency room, uh, nobody in the lobby is just hanging out in the emergency room unless they're weird. Uh, The ER is a place that's reserved for people who need medical treatment, right? Uh, Just the same, the doctors and nurses that show up at a hospital to work, uh, they're there not to treat the well, they are there to deal with the myriad of issues that they're going to see on like an 8 to 12 hour shift. And that's what Jesus is getting at, just from a spiritual standpoint. Uh, If you're just killing it in the spiritual walk, If you're saying like, man, I am on fire, I'm doing all these things right, I don't sin, then you have no need for Jesus. If you have no need for grace, why does Jesus need to offer you his grace? Uh, To go even further, Jesus uses this quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea. He tells the Pharisees, he says, hey, go and learn what this means, which is funny because that's what the Pharisees would tell the people. So he uses their language, hey, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Uh, That's a quote out of the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. I'm guessing that a lot of you don't spend your quiet time in Hosea, so let me give you the context of what's going on here. Uh, The book of Hosea is an Old Testament prophecy given to the people of Israel where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah for one purpose. He's reminding God's people how unfaithful they are to God. Uh, You can flip through the pages of Hosea. You can read it when you go home. In the book, he compares the people of of God to a promiscuous wife, an indifferent mother, an illegitimate child, an ungrateful son, just not good things. He's saying, Israel, you're all those things. Time and time again, Israel, the people of God, you're walking away from him. You're completely disobedient to him. Basically, these people lived their life in such a way that they were not in the least bit concerned with their obedience to God. So in Hosea 6, 6, Hosea says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Essentially, he's trying to get the people to move in the direction of obedience rather than just living a life of staunch disobedience and then, hey, I'll just offer a sacrifice and make it all better. I'll just show up at church in the morning and everything will be all better. That's a miserable, miserable way to live your life. That's why Jesus uses that quote here. Uh, Jesus uses the word mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea used the word love. Uh, That word, mercy, love, in the Greek or Hebrew, it's meant to convey loyalty, obedience. Uh, This concept of being doers of the word and not just hearers only. Uh, God's not overly concerned with all your actions within your spiritual disciplines. If you're like Joe Bible reading plan and you get up every day and I read the Bible for 30 minutes but your heart's never transformed, If you're never grown to be more like Christ, then your 30 minutes a day are just a waste of time. Uh, If Jesus is the great physician and you have no need to be repaired, you ultimately have no need for him. So I think it's wise to see this story through a couple different lenses. 
Uh, so for the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you guys to put yourselves in categories. Uh, just put yourselves in these categories honestly. Uh, if you're a Pharisee, you don't need to write on the bulletin like I'm a Pharisee. Uh, just keep that to yourself. So let's just say uh, you read this story, you put yourself in the camp of Pharisees. I'm talking to the people who you clearly, clearly, clearly see other people's sin, but you really, really struggle to see your own sin. Um, the reality of the Christian life is this. No one in this room, if you're a Christian, should stand up and say, you know what? I am killing it in my spirituality right now. I had a guy email me about a year ago, told me he did not, he hadn't sinned in four years. I was like, Jesus has returned. <laughs> um, nobody should just be like, man, I'm doing awesome. Uh, that's not how Christianity works. We're not supposed to like walk around with our heads hanging, but let me just give you an example of this. Uh, what I'm trying to say is the more you become like Jesus, the more aware you are of your own sin. Uh, so last Saturday, uh, I took my family to the Diamondbacks game. Uh, we are staunch supporters of the Diamondbacks, and they lose every game I take my family to. Uh, so when we leave Chase Field, we walk out of Chase Field. Uh, my kids can last like six innings. We leave at the end of the sixth, and then we walk out of the ballpark, and we notice there's like this massive fire. Uh, there's just like a cloud of smoke over downtown. And I'm like, Kristen, that fire is like close by. This couple, I'm loud. This couple in front of me was like, the fire's on 19th Avenue and Bell. And I'm like, no, it's not. That fire is nearby. We're downtown. 19th Avenue and Bell is far away. But sure enough, we leave the parking garage. Uh, we get on I-10 and we see like, no, actually that fire is really far away. Uh, we didn't realize that in the time that the fire started, how far the smoke had traveled to where it looked like it was downtown. So we're driving home, Kristen's on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. She sees that a recycling plant has caught fire in downtown Glendale. So naturally, the more we drive home on the 10, the more you can kind of see the fire, right? The, more, the closer you get to the fire, the more you start to see the size of the fire. And it becomes clear at the very beginning when we saw the smoke, we completely misjudged the smoke. When you can only see a portion of the smoke and you can't see the whole fire, you don't know the size of the fire. When you have limited scope, you can't see the whole thing. But the closer you get to the fire, the more you see how the fire is huge. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. When you first start, when you first become a Christian, you have a million questions. What should I read? How do I pray? How do I do this? How do I do that? And a lot of you, when you become a Christian, you have a little bit of a misjudged view or a skewed view on who God is, which is okay, just don't stay that way. When you're a Christian, you are supposed to, over time, grow closer to God. And the closer you grow to him, the more you start to see how big and how awesome and how holy and mighty he is. The closer you get to Christ, the more you see how much of a wretch you are and how much in need of a savior you are. The more you have to lean on every day when you get up and you jack up, you have to lean that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you and that's what gets you by. That's what gets you forgiven, not your works. So here's an example. If I pray in such a way, like I, I would say I have a, a strong prayer life. I don't think I have like a vibrant prayer life. Uh, but as I've prayed a lot more this year than I ever have, I uh, wake up every day and I pray for about 30 minutes. I've started to see in my life that the more and more I pray, the more and more I spend time with God, it seems to be the more convicted of sins I have that I did not realize were there. Why is that? 
because I'm growing closer to God and he is transforming me through the power of his Holy Spirit to make me more like him. So in our story this morning, you have the Pharisees. They're the ones who wouldn't even sniff the sinners because they thought they had no sin themselves. And we see very clearly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yo, I did not come for people like you. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if you see no sin in your life, I would encourage you to pray more. Our reality of the situation is that all of us in this room are sinners. But some of us are redeemed, some of us are not. All of us in this room being filled with sin from birth are the people that Jesus Christ came to this earth to save. If you're the Pharisee in this story, pray for repentance. Pray for clear eyes to see your own sin. Stop the religious sacrifices and exhibit love and loyalty and mercy. Uh, let me finish this story, this story this morning with Jesus' final statement. At the end of verse 13, he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, that statement right there is really, really good news for everybody in this room. Uh, for the Christian, this is really good news. Again, even though you are filled with sin, uh, you ultimately fall into the arms of a Savior. How God views you is not as a sinner, he views you as a saint. Uh, we see through Jesus this morning that through your sin... Jesus does not run away from you. He moves towards you. Therefore, a Christian, there should be no such thing as a Christian that's kind of just like hanging their head in shame. Uh, all week, I just kept focusing on that word, like Jesus is eating with sinners, right? That word sinner. Uh, the opposite of sinner is a saint, right? When you're a Christian and you accept Christ, your status before God changes. When you're adopted by God, you're forgiven by God through the work of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when you become a Christian, he does not look at you as a sinner. He looks at you as a saint. He looks at you as his child. So if you're a Christian this morning, that's just kind of wallowing in sin. You're kind of still in your own mess. These things that you can't confess, these things that you can't repent of. This morning, what Jesus is trying to get you to see is you don't have to live your life like that. He's brought you in. He's adopted you as one of his sons or daughters. And Jesus Christ loves you more than anything or anyone that you could ever think of. He came to this earth to rescue you. That song we just sang, Come Thou Fount, it talks about, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's all of us in this room. That our natural bent is to wander. But what does Jesus do? He seeks you out like a stranger and he pulls you back in. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, you don't have to hang your head in shame. You don't have to be scared to be obedient to Jesus Christ. You're obedient to the one who's not asking you for all this begrudging submission. He's just saying, can you just be loyal to me? And there's nothing harder in the world than to just be loyal to Christ. And Christ is just sitting there and saying, I have open arms and I'm ready to welcome you. Uh, let me talk to someone in here who's skeptical about Jesus. Uh, maybe you walked in here today, it's your first time, you might be skeptical about religion in general, uh, you're just kind of checking out church or your neighbor dragged you here. Uh, maybe for you, it's the religious people that you don't like. I want you to see this morning that Jesus didn't like those people either, so you're in good company. Uh, this morning, Jesus is getting you to see that he's not just welcoming you, uh, he sees you in the midst of your sin, he sees you in the midst of your separation. And he pulls up a chair at the table and he wants to eat next to you. He's not literally going to eat next to you, but you get what I'm saying. He pulls up a chair and he wants communion with you. He wants relationship with you. 
I'll go so far to say that Jesus Christ actually came to this earth for the specific purpose of dying for you. Uh, This morning, the arms of Christ are open. They're freely available to you this morning. Uh, Again, we look at the story of Matthew. Uh, All of us are in different situations. Like Matthew, uh, someone in this room could be called. You know what you walked in here with. You know that you walked in here with brokenness. You know that you walk in and you have one foot or two feet in the world. And you know in this moment the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. Man, just leave all that behind and follow me. And that's what's called faith. Stepping out in faith, just like Matthew did that day. Stepping out in faith and saying, no, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. His life is better for me. I could have comfort. I could have contentment. I could have all these things back here. But I know the minute I take a step toward Jesus, he's there and he's going to care for me. And maybe that's you this morning. He's calling you to leave your life and accept him. Uh, If that's you this morning, I'm going to pray for you in a second. Uh, But church, I want to remind you, uh, there is nothing like the grace of God. There is nothing more beautiful than the grace of God. Uh, My prayer for this church is that I think there's a lot of people at this church that want knowledge, they want growth, and all that stuff is absolutely awesome. We want to build biblical depth at Salt Church, but church, we cannot leave those doors and look at the tax collectors and look at the sinners like the Pharisees do. The same grace that God's given you, exhibit that to every single person that you meet. Let me end in prayer. Uh, God, I thank you so much for how awesome you are. Uh, God, I thank you for that your grace is free to us and it costs your son everything. Um, God, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would just lead uh, people in this room to repentance in all kinds of different ways. Um, God, I just pray for the person in this room that doesn't know you. Um, Lord, they've never walked with you. Uh, They're not obedient to you. They don't love you. They're not loyal to you. Uh, God, I know it's not my words. It's your spirit that has to open up hearts so that they could see Jesus, how much better you are. Uh, God, I pray today that there's just a step taken of faith to where people repent of their sins and they trust you for the very first time. Uh, God, if you're working in a heart in this room, God, I pray that you do that clearly. Um, Father, I pray for the people in this room who have been going to church for a long time, uh, but yet they're still stuck in sin. Uh, They're still stuck with these things that plague us. Uh, God, I pray that they see their sin as nothing but filth before you and something that you nailed to the cross. Uh, God, I pray that all of us are given an attitude toward repentance. Uh, Lord, some of us that need to see uh, glaring sin in our own lives that we're blind to, God, I pray that the scales fall off our eyes. Uh, Father, I pray that you just make this church a place uh, where the sinner can be welcomed and ultimately, God, they're transformed into your adopted son or daughter, a saint. Uh, Father, I love you so much. I just thank you for what you do for us. Uh, Lord, I thank you for taking care of us. I thank you that you're a God that can only do good and you can be trusted. Uh, so God, we give our lives to you and we just ask us to shape, you, shape us into whatever form you want us to be in. God, shape me, shape this church into whatever form you want us to be in, Lord, so you can eke out every single ounce of glory in and through, not just us as people, but us as a collective body of believers at Salt Church. So God, we lay today before you and just ask God that you would work in this place. You would work on hearts, you'd work on minds. Lord, that you would transform us into people who follow you with everything that we have. It's in your son's name I pray, amen.